I'm Beth. And I'm Jimmy. And we're the Talk to the Hand podcast. Hi Beth, one week to Christmas. I'm so excited. Oh, the house is just packed with decorations everywhere. Presents. Have you done your wrapping? Does that include putting them in a plastic bag and tying a knot in the top oh, of the bag? that winds me up. <laughs> you know that they do nice paper Christmas bags that you could put your stuff in. I know, but you know they do plastic carrier bags you can put stuff in too. I refuse, no, I refuse to have them under the tree. If you provide, if you come down with them, they're going, no, they're going straight back up. Get, get oh, your daughter to wrap them. That's yeah, what I did that before. last year. Yeah. She did a good job with it. Because again, she's my daughter and she loves Christmas. Shall we get into it? I really enjoyed the last podcast. It was really good. I hope you did too, listeners. It was really good to reminisce and thinking about those songs that we'd forgotten were around actually at Christmas time. And it's quite interesting, this one, because the years 95 to 99, for me, that would have been 15 to 19 yeah. kind of age. Yeah. For you, 16 to 20. Yeah. So probably a bit more familiar with music at the time. Yes, definitely. And the, the songs that were out when you went out, you know, Christmas Eve or between Christmas and New Year's Eve mm. and New Year's Eve night. Remember having to pay for the pubs, £10. Yes, you, you, you probably still have to do that. Yeah, it's just we're so sad we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true, isn't it? Because we don't go out. Like, I just remember you had to book. on cabs. Oh, yes. And that definitely. was when you were trying to beg a lift off your parents. Yes and seeing in the new year in all the different places. So we're going to pick up in 1995. So for now... Let's rewind to the 90s. So the Christmas number one for 1995 was Michael Jackson with Earth Song. Earth Song, complete with Jarvis Cocker or just... (laughs) It was mooniness. (laughs) Quite interesting, really, because this song was pushed back a year because of the success E17 had with Stay Another Day. They didn't want to go in and try and compete with that, so they thought they'd wait for a quieter year. There's the manipulation of the charts, then, that we talked about last time. Why are you saying it like it's a surprise to you? I don't know, because I think at the time I was naive. At the time, yeah. So the realm of the environment often feels like a burial ground for pop culture, and this is hardly astonishing. Now, Earth Song isn't strictly about green politics. Whales and elephants get a cameo, but it's more of a general why, why, oh why kind of address stroke sermon stroke meltdown on the general rottenness of mankind. Earth Song is not generally taken seriously in Britain. But it was at the time, wasn't it? Well, it was his his biggest selling single here. Yeah. But his fate was sealed probably in the moment you referenced earlier Mm. when Jarvis Cocker Mm. flashed his buttocks onto the stage. But he said it wasn't. It wasn't a Mooney. (laughs) So Jarvis wagged an accusing arse in Jackson's direction and it was an attempt to puncture the messianic pomposity of Jacko's kid-festooned earth song performance. It's tactless creepiness. It was a bit creepy. Mm. The specific kids became a bargaining chip in the PR to and fro that followed. But Cocker had a point about the song, about its staging. If any performance gets to be slammed in this way, it's one where the singer explicitly addressing his song to God and then spends the video in cruciform pose, lashed by biblical storm and fury. Mm. It was pompous. And when you look back at some of the, let's say, controversies of Michael Jackson's career... He's sort of like the last person. It doesn't really feel appropriate, really, does it? 
Now, he wasn't taking on the sins of the world in the extraordinary call and response cola. He was just mainlining them, free associating them and howling them out from a place beyond sense. What about yesterday? What about the seas? The heavens are falling down. I can't even breathe. It was an apocalypse as a panic attack. What about the man? What about the crying man? What about Abraham? <laughs> it's just nonsense. It's just the, the aimless ramblings. It's only when towards the end, when the drums turn up, it was about at three minutes of the song, that it began its shift from mawkish bloodfest to Armageddon power ballad. You're not a big fan of the song, are you? I just don't like the whole drama. No. There, there's a Cliff Richard element of preachiness about it. See, do yeah. As Jackson flew around the world in yeah. his private jet to sing the yeah. song, <laughs> you, you know. There is like an irony to it, isn't there? Yeah. Cocker wasn't buying that irony and he wasn't alone. It's easy to listen to Earth Song and think this is ridiculous because it is ridiculous. It's overblown, vulgar, all things which sometimes make for awful pop music. But it is also intense, it's grand and passionate. All things which sometimes make really good pop music. Mm. Earth Song is a very rich, reclusive, strange man channeling a childlike anger at the terrible things people do through an adult practice sense of how to build a record. Earth Song became Jackson's sixth number one. It achieved significant commercial success and stayed at the top of the charts for several weeks. Number two, though. This is the novelty record I mentioned in the last episode. Yes, yeah. Now, our listeners might not remember this. I don't know, they might. Do you think they will? It summed up the mid-90s in all its piss-taking glory. Yeah. We'd had Wonderwall from Oasis, but now we had the same song in a cheesed-up version <laughs> delivered by Mike Flowers Pops. <laughs> The story of Mike Flowers, real name Mike Roberts, and his version of Wonderwall is pretty random. The band, uh, a proper easy ensemble of 14 members. 14 members in a group. And, and they'd all appear on top of the yeah, box, the yeah, stage would be packed stage. out. They capitalised on the burgeoning charity shop chic look, reviving the past in cord flares, tank tops, lava lamps, cuboid furniture and the like. Yeah, because they had a sort of a 60s vibe for them, yeah, didn't they? And the song yeah, had they, yeah. they basically made the song oh, into a 65. Yeah, yeah. BBC radio producer Will Saunders caught the band live and thought it would be a neat idea to bring Mike Flowers up for a short run of features on Kevin Greening's Saturday show on Radio 1, covering the hits of 95 in a postmodern and cocktail sophisticate type way. Now, this being the year that Oasis pretty much ruled popular culture, Wonderwall was at the top of that list and the wheels were then set in motion. Chris Evans made it single of the week. <laughs> And he did this thing as a wind-up, which was yeah. quite brilliant in retrospect, but he basically put out the story that this was the original and Oasis had covered it. Did people fall for it? It definitely built a buzz. Yeah, yeah. It must have annoyed their brothers. In 95, I think they were off their heads. Yeah. I don't think they were yeah. listening to Chris Evans on the radio. London Records wasted no time getting the song out on the racks. It went in with a bullet at number two in the UK singles chart for Christmas week, while the original Oasis version was resting in number seven. The whole episode was a bit weird, but just extremely 90s. So 90s. So you yeah. had the two song, the same song in the same top 10. Yeah. The original now at number seven, having already topped the charts. Yeah. Yeah. And then this one racing in at number two. Boys Own were at number three with the song Ronan had sung in his audition for the group, oh, Father and Son. And why wasn't that number one? Because it wasn't good enough. <laughs> he had his spiky hair then he as did, well, didn't he? He did have his spiky hair. Did you like that look? I did like that. And they were they were wearing white white in that as well. I wonder if they were trying to be like for the E seventeen. It's a good song. It's, it's probably good song. you like the original though, don't you? Probably yeah, but 
I'd say, thinking of Boyzone songs, and that might be my second favourite Boyzone song. What's your favourite one? It would be the one that Sheeran wrote, just because. Just because, yeah. So in fourth place was Bjork. At first listen, it's Oh So Quiet might become across as a simple love song. However, Bjork's artistic vision goes much deeper than that. The song explores the rollercoaster of emotions that come with falling in love, juxtaposing moments of serenity with eruptive bursts of passion. Bjork's aim was to capture the unpredictable nature of love, reflecting how it can go from quiet and tranquil to chaotic and overwhelming in an instant. Now, I have to say, when I was 15, 16, I didn't get that. I just no. heard a song I thought was crap. Yeah. Do you remember Top of the Pops and she had her pigtails or something, but she had people on the floor and she was like going in between them. Shh, yeah. oh, so quiet. Shh, it was, oh, so she quiet. was definitely eccentric. Yeah, she was, she was she eccentric. She was Goldie. Was she? I'm pretty sure she was with Goldie oh. for a while. In fifth place was Everything But The Girl with Missing. Yeah. I've got a sweet fact for you here, Beth, on, and I, I think you're going to like this. I didn't really like that song. I bet you're going to like this fact. So you remember it was a man and a woman in the group? Yeah. So the woman was Tracy Thorne and the man was Ben Watt and they were a couple. Right, yeah. They're in their 60s now and they're still together. Oh, that is sweet. Gangster's oh. Paradise was at number six. Oh, yeah, that's good. While the Beatles were at eight with Free as a Bird. Free as a Bird, oh. Robson and Jerome, who didn't actually sing most of their songs, were at nine with the double A side, I Believe, and Up on the Roof. But there's a real quiz for you now coming up, Beth. Yeah, well then. Do you remember the song Gift of Christmas? Is that the one that was... The gift of Christmas. Yes. The gift of Christmas. So it was like yeah. a it was like a pound shop band-aid. Pound shop band-aid. Here's your quiz. Yep. Can you tell me who was in it? Well I know Boys Own were in it. Yes. Because that's how I know it. Uh trying to think anybody else. E seventeen? Yes. Backstreet Boys? I'm trying to think yes. at the time. Yes. Can't think of any more now. Just trying to think of all the, the bands that were around at the time. Yeah, go on. Who else? So, I'm going to give you the list of those that you've missed. ASAP. Okay. CJ Lewis. I remember that because he did the, the kind of... Uh, I'm so reluctant to say the rag a bit at the end, but <laughs> the pop rag a bit at the end. Danny Minogue. Oh, yeah. Deuce. No, that's um, Aunt McPartlin's old one, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Armstrong, Lisa Armstrong. EYC, Gemini, Let Loose. Crazy, yeah. Emily? Yeah. Michelle Gale? Ah, yeah. Nightcrawlers? Yeah. Peter Andre? See, I've forgotten. Sean Maguire? Oh, Sean Maguire, yes. I bumped into him once in a nightclub in Finchley Road. It was called Belugas. And I remember I was there with my mates and uh, I'd gone to the toilet. And as I come out of the toilet, he was going in. Mm. It was very gracious, not big headed yeah, or anything Yeah, no, else. no. But it's fair to say he spent quite a while in there, if you know what I mean. Yes, yeah. The okay. Flood. Yeah. Ultimate Chaos. Oh, were they in it? West End. Who were they? I have no idea. I don't remember them at all. Um, no, no, no. Can I Can I just ask? I don't remember him in it, but maybe I've missed it. Was Cliff in it? Cliff was not in it. No. Christmas... Do you think he asked and they said no? No. If you look at the, the types of people they've got in it, they're yeah, all, they were all about half his age yeah, at true. best but I've missed one person out deliberately a friend of the show was in it oh China Black he was in it oh yeah our friend China Black oh Errol Reed was in, yeah. was in the group as well 
Oh, that's really good. You see, again, I want to go and watch that again now. So Cliff Richard was still knocking out songs like The Ghost of Christmas Past. In 95, he released Had To Be with Olivia Newton-John and he peaked at 22. And I think that's a good place to leave 1995 and head over the 12-month train landing in 1996. And this was the start of Christmas chart domination. Oh. As the Spice Girls wrestled, and there's a bit of a spoiler here, the Spice Girls wrestled to the top spot for three years in a row. Three years, fair play to them. So out of the 90s, three yeah. years of the 90s, Spice Girls were number one oh. at Christmas. And it began with Two Becomes One. Two Become One, that was a nice one, that one. It was the group's third chart topper in the UK, selling 209,000 copies in the first three days of release and then 462,000 in the first week. Wow, that's incredible. So if you remember what we said on the last episode, 600,000, you go platinum. They mm. almost went platinum in the first week. week yeah. Two Become One was co-written by the Spice Girls along with partners Richard Stannard and Matthew Rowe. The slow ballad focuses upon the bonding of two lovers and how it can become so strong that they practically become one entity through the act of <laughs> sexual intercourse. Yeah. Emma, Victoria Beckham, Mel C, Mel B and Jerry can be seen dancing in front of some famous New York landmarks in the music video while dancing around in fluffy coats. And I remember at the time there was quite a bit of coverage about how cold it was when it was being recorded. But shut the front door, Beth. Emma Bunton recently shattered that bullshit on her radio show as she revealed the whole thing was actually filmed in front of a green screen in London. Did you know that? No. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I'm offended. My, ni- my 90s had been ruined. It was all a lie. She also revealed that the Spice Girls decided to change the lyrics to the classic ballad at the last minute to be more inclusive of the LGBT community. The original line was, any deal that we endeavour, boys and girls feel good together. But it was changed to the current lyrics, which are, once again, if we endeavour, love will bring us back together. So not to be specific about the boys and girls. And there were a a couple of different themes in the song. The situation was the first. It was an encounter in which the guy is hesitant, maybe feels guilty and is in need of reassurance. But it's one where the woman is unwaveringly in control of the situation and just trying to get a partner to come to the same conclusion about what she has. (laughs) Trying to, get, trying to get her partner to come to the same conclusion that she's already come to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were going to do it. <laughs> but the second one, the second theme of the song, mm. is around safe sex. With the put it on, oh, put, put it, it on. on. Yeah. Did you not know that? Yeah, I did. Are you sure? I did, I'm sure. In second place that year is a song that still brings sadness. Knocking on Heaven's Door, the Dunblane Tribute. With the consent of Bob Dylan, Ted Christopher wrote a new verse for Knocking on Heaven's Door in memory of the school children and teacher killed in the Dunblane school massacres. Madonna was third with her Evita song, Don't Cry For Me Argentina. And fourth place was a 90s classic with Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart. Mm. I saw her sing that live. Did you? Yeah. Where were you then? Wembley Stadium. Oh. I was working there, like doing kind of stewarding and cleaning of these kind of events mm. in my teens. And there was this particular concert that was the most random you've ever seen. There were 30 acts going back 30 years, and each act did a song from previous years. Like, some acts did multiple songs. Yeah. Tony Braxton was one of the acts there that year. John Bon Jovi was there. Mm. Seal was uh, there. Robert yeah, Palmer so was yeah. there. Shaka Khan was there. Yeah, there was a lot of artists, but it was pretty yeah. amazing. Now, Tony Braxton initially didn't like the song for her. She said she heard the song and thought... This is nice, it's all right. But the record producer said, we think this is a smash. 
she knew that they wanted to change her image and make her a little sexier. And it was strategic to be an adult contemporary artist because of the texture of her voice. But she wanted to be 25 years old and she thought Unbreak My Heart would put her back in the same category of being a, an adult contemporary artist. Yeah, yeah. But they turned out to be right, she said. I didn't want to do it, but I did it. And it was the biggest thing in my career. You'll know the next one that I'm going to mention, Beth. One by One by Robert Miles yeah. featuring Maria Naylor. That was in fifth. Yeah, yeah. It was one that grew on me, but yeah, it is a good one. And a song you actually brought up in the last podcast episode, uh, E17 and Gabrielle, they were 16th. See, I'm surprised that that did. I mean, that was me thinking it should have been number but one. It wasn't a like Christmas song. song. It did go higher than that. But, but it eventually, wasn't a yeah, song. but not the Christmas song. Yeah. Uh, 3T hung around in 18th with I Need You. Yeah, 3T. That was a good it? song. It was a good song. That had Michael Jackson doing some vocals in towards the end as well. It, yeah. Squeeze Between Them in 17th was another Spice Girls song, Say You'll Be There. Yes. That was their second one, wasn't wow. it? Wow, yeah, well, yes, that was still in the charts. So on to 1997, where the chart was once again topped by the Spice Girls. Surprise, surprise. This time it was with Too Much. That's not as Christmassy as Two Become One. No, and I have to say, I didn't really like the song. No. It, was, it felt a bit middle of the road. Yeah, but by that time, I suppose, they had the hype, so anything that they put out would probably get bought. Yeah, so the song itself was mainly written by Jerry, and it was recorded during the hectic Spice World filming. Mm. So Jerry wrote the initial part, but the group members co-wrote the song with its producer, Paul Wilson and Andy Watkins, the songwriting and production duo known as Absolute. It was their sixth consecutive chart topper, which made them the first act to have its first six singles reach number one in the UK. Incredible, looking back at it like It that. makes you remember just how massive they were. Yeah. Do you know what? I remember the night that Channel 5 launched and Spice Girls played a big part of it. And I remember flicking over the channels. And that night, whenever it was that Channel 5 launched, Spice Girls were consecutively on three of the five main channels at the same time. time. So you couldn't not see them, you know. The song was recorded in a caravan in the middle of mayhem. Wilson and Watkins doggedly worked on it with whatever group members were available at the time. You know, the ones that Mm -hmm. weren't in the middle of filming. So they didn't actually do the track together. They were all coming in and out. Doing their bits and then off again. And a considerable amount of production work was required afterwards before the track reached its final form. And whatever you think of the song, it did play a huge rescue role for the chart that year because it saved us from the Teletubbies and their instantly forgettable song. Teletubbies say, eh-oh. Eh-oh, yeah. So thanks to the Spice Girls, we didn't have another Mr Blobby song. Yeah, so... This Teletubby song was clearly a, a niche record, but there are enough people in that niche, which is basically parents of preschool kids, to yeah. give it seven-figure sales. The vibe is benign chaos, and thank God again for the Spice Girls. Yeah, even if they did do it in a caravan, not all together, it still saved us from the Teletubbies. Absolutely. So number three in the chart came about in November of 97, when BBC gathered together a starry cast of singers and musicians from a variety of genres to perform a charity cover of Lou Reed's Perfect Day. The song is about a self-loathing guy on a date with a woman he loves. It became the UK's number one single for three weeks, but did miss out on Christmas. Do you remember that song? I do remember that song, and I remember the people, actually. A bit like a band-aid type one, getting all the artists doing their bit. The rest of the top ten read out in order were Never Ever by All Saints, Janet Jackson's Together Again. That was a good song. Aqua's Barbie Girl. Yeah. And Angels by Robbie Williams. Torn by Natalie Imbruglier. Baby Can I Hold You by Boyzone, and a bit of a surprise with Mace hitting 10 would feel so good. Oh, yeah. 
And you remember Stephen Houghton from London's Burning? Yes, I do. I do remember. So he released Wind Beneath My Wings and was at number 12, having previously peaked at number three. But I can't finish this year's roundup without mentioning the celebrated 14th position this year. And you're going to love this. Yeah, what was it? No way, no way. <gasps> mana, mana. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, that's so funny. What, what number? 14? Yeah, I mean, as more and more record labels sought to capitalise on the growing dominance of bubblegum pop in the late 90s, finding an angle for each new act became vital, and Vanilla were no exception to that rule. Although the rumoured idea behind their inception, which was that a bet between record label executives over who could score a hit with the most objectively rubbish group was as unusual as it was dubious. So we're not 100% sure that that was actually true, but it was a very common rumour at the time. And unfortunately for the group, it was very believable. They were inherently bad. Vanilla appeared to exist as an example of what might happen if a label hired four aspiring pop stars and then didn't bother developing the concept any further than that. They were like an antithesis to the slick, preened stage school personas that usually graced the pages of smash hits, and they instead represented a product that was comparatively raw, unpolished by late 90s standards, and I'd probably go so far as to say crap. They were terrible. So almost everything about it was bad. It was the, the throbbing bass line that resembled a nauseating electro belch, the shrill, the grating, that they used to do the instrumental riff or their flat flat vocals it was just so poor wasn't the last bit don't get fresh with me yes <laughs> don't get fresh with me it was just so dull the video is almost indescribable but i'm gonna try for you beth vanilla teeter drunkenly at the edge of her local swimming pool baths waggling their fingers there's an absolutely terrible speaking part in the middle that goes Did you hear what that guy just said to me? He said I could have any girl here, but tonight's your lucky night. No way. He said that to me last week. It was the worst song (laughs) I can ever remember. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say it's worse than Mr. Blobby and the Teletubbies. Yeah, would you have taken them? You take the Tubby Toast. Yeah, I'd have to. It was so bad. In our Boyzone episode, we talked about Louis Walsh's ambition to make an Irish take that. Now, someone may somewhere along the line have thought we should do another type of Spice Girls group, but my God, this was not it. They were awful. So when we go racing forward to 1998 and the Spice Girls complete their hat trick with the song Goodbye. Yeah, that was a nice one. By the time they released Goodbye, Jerry Halliwell wasn't part of the group anymore. Of course, the Spice Girls were adamant that they'd continue as a quartet, and the track was written in part before Jerry left the group, but then it was reworked a bit afterwards. And while the Spice Girls maintained that this single was not specifically about Jerry, you can see where it transitioned from a breakup song into something that was a lot more self-referential, I think. It's interesting because at the time I thought it was. It was a case of being with Jerry and saying goodbye to her, saying goodbye to someone that had obviously been with them on a journey. What makes Goodbye so powerful, though, is that the subject of the song now has an identity, so they've got that yeah. focus of Jerry. Yeah. You know, the words seem to mean much more. By clinging on to a slight air of mystique, even at their most emotionally exposed, the Spice Girls allowed their fans to join them in a personal moment of mourning. We'd all seen yeah. it from the start, and we all definitely knew what the song was really yeah. about, despite yeah. them kind of yeah, denying exactly. it. Yeah. And once again, the Spice Girls had beaten off competition from a novelty song, Chocolate Salty Balls, a South Park song, and it had been to number one and was the first outright comedy record to do that since The Stonk. 
Chris Moyles really got behind the song and helped propel it up the charts and kept it in front of third place, which was Denise and Johnny Vaughan murdering, especially for you. Why would they do that? Cashing in. I know, but why? Cashing in. (laughs) (laughs) Cher was at number four with Believe and the song changed the way modern music is made by introducing auto-tune to the mainstream. It was followed by Bewitched in the charts with To You I Belong. No, me neither. Steps with Heartbeat and Tragedy, End of the Line by The Honeys, and When You're Gone by Brian Adams and Mel C were in positions five, six, seven, eight. Did you see what I did? Yeah. Did you see what I did? Because I talked about a step song and then I came back. Oh, clever. Cheers, thanks. In number 10 was Jane MacDonald with Cruising to Christmas. Honourable mentions are due, though, for Jay Z with Hard Knock Life in 12 and Robbie Williams and No Regrets in 19. Dancing Baby was in 21, but nothing more to say about that. So this takes us to the final chapter of the 90s. Just before the millennium, we go to 1999. So you haven't mentioned Cliff Richard. He, where has he been for these last few years? Well, after a few year, years out of the charts at Christmas, Cliff Richard returns with Millennium Prayer. But he was beaten off the top spot by Westlife with their double A side, I Have a Dream and Seasons in the Sun. This was only the fourth time in the last 20 years that the Christmas number one has been a cover. I Have a Dream was one of ABBA's best loved ballads and the original was sat at number two 20 years earlier. Denied the chance to be Christmas number one by Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. So we talked about him earlier and Cliff came in seconds with Millennium Prayer. And describing the song is a lot easier than having to listen to it. The words of the Lord's Prayer draped awkwardly on the music of Old Lang Syne. John Lennon's Imagine came in third. The re-release of this classic isn't as opportunistic as it might seem, as John Lennon's masterpiece was actually set to become the nation's official Millennium Anthem to be played at the Millennium Dome in Greenwich during the New Year celebrations. Fourth place ensured the noble tradition of seasonal novelty records is continued in the shape of the first ever hit single for The Cuban Boys with their track Cognoscenti Vis Intelligentsia. Two in a Million and You're My Number One, S Club Seven, were in fifth place. The Artful Dodger featuring Craig David with Rewind was at number six, followed by another double A side, this time with Say You'll Be Mine and Better the Devil. A random call out for a great track at number 16 was Still My Sunshine. Yeah, I used to like that one. Is it Len or Elien? Len, I think. That was a good song. Yeah, that was a good song. That rounds up the Christmas charts through the 90s. And my word, Beth, what a journey it's been. That is brilliant. Oh my God, all those songs. What sticks out for you? Do you know what? I didn't realise. In the 90s, there was no Band Aid version. No. So thinking about it, they did the original one. 84. Then 84. Then what one had... was Jason Donovan and Kylie in? Must have been 89. 89, 89 I think it was. yeah. So then I was thinking, I remember Rachel Stevens from S Club 7. I remember a more modern version of it. But actually, that was, wasn't in the 90s, that was in the 2000s. It was. So the 90s is the only decade that they didn't get, they didn't do a rerun. Yeah, that is a surprise. Yeah. So what would you say your favourite Christmas song generally is? It's I like think... it's like picking the least smelliest dog shit, isn't it? You're just miserable. <laughs> you are the Grinch. I need to get you a full Grinch outfit and you need to go and live on a hill somewhere. And just look down on everyone enjoying all the Christmas spirit and you'll be like... Mm-hmm. But you know, we'll be over next week. Yeah, but... You don't think of it like that, but you get annoyed with me, don't you? Because at Chris, on Christmas, you build it up for you build it up for two or three months, and then you get to it, and it's not as big as you 
build it up to be and you're disappointed with that and then we get to the next year and yet still in October you're all excited again because it's you that make disappoints me because you just I'm fine on Christmas you Day you are to be fair you are Christmas Day you're up singing the songs and it's always a bit too much because I've had it for the last yeah because and I always I say that to you you spend so much time looking forward to it that when it actually gets there you're fed up a bit by then <laughs> that's why you should leave the decorations till like the 20th of December some people take their decorations down. Boxing Day. And I should have married someone like that. Yeah. <laughs> should have married someone who didn't put them up in the first place. <laughs> yes. But no, it's been a, a great great to go through some of the, the songs of the 90s. And what was really interesting to me, I think, was some of the songs that were kind of slipping down yeah. the charts, but still yeah. around, like yes. The Real McCoy. Yeah. That was yeah. a great song. Yeah, that was, that was. And for me, it's those ones that sort of just missed out on the yeah. top spot for various reasons you know the number twos and number threes that you think oh yeah i remember that that was really good and actually you never made number one so have, have you enjoyed it i have enjoyed it because it was your idea you wanted yeah. to do something christmas and i thought the christmas charts i mean leaves us with a problem for next year <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I thought it would be a good idea to kind of flip through the whole 90s and see how it started oh. off with from bohemian rhapsody to westlife with the hat trick of spice girls in between and novelty and records oh vanilla yeah that was probably there the worst record of the 90s and any other year. <laughs> it was awful. It was but it's been great to go through. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And please comment uh, when you subscribe to us about your favourite Christmas number ones that we've talked about. And all that's left to say is to all our wonderful listeners, we hope you have a wonderful and messful Christmas and enjoy all your New Year celebrations. Thank you so much for the support you've given us since we started. It feels like we've been going for forever, but we've only been running since the end of August, beginning of September. So thank you so much for the support you've given us in that time. We wish you all a very Merry Christmas, even from the Grinch here. <laughs> and we really look forward to doing some more episodes next year. Until next week, talk, talk to the hands. hands.